Good morning. I'd like to open your Bibles up to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. We're going to be reading from there in just a moment. Most of you, you're going to probably recognize, maybe remember some of this sermon as a sermon that I've preached before in the past. But I was thinking, what am I going to speak about this morning? Uh, what is going to be our topic? And I have been planning on preaching through 1 Thessalonians, uh, the latter part of chapter 4. In fact, I've been telling some other people that was what I was going to speak on this morning and, and trying to put that sermon together over this holiday, seems like month. <laughs> um, I found myself having a little bit of difficulty, but I also found myself thinking that really I, I'm not sure that that's what we needed at this time. Because uh, for, for, for many of us, we're, we're kind of ready to put 2019 behind us. Not that it's been a terrible year. Uh, certainly there have been some hard things that have happened. Some of us harder than others. Uh, things that we've had to deal with in the year of 2019. But I think for most of us, the desire to put the year behind us is because we're really ready for 2020. We're ready to see what the new year has in store for our families, for our, our children. I'm ready to see what it has in store for Lake Street. What's going to happen in this coming year? We're looking forward to that, and I'm asking myself, how do I do that? How do I look forward, and how do I grow and glorify God? Maybe some of you have set some spiritual goals for yourself for this next year. I hope so. That's something that I'm setting up for me. Maybe it's, I, I hope that I read my Bible more, and I, I plan to do that in the next year. I plan to be more hospitable and maybe less offensive, or I plan to use more encouraging words and complain less in 2020. And my thought as I prepared for this, this week was, how can I help with that? What can I do to, to help foster those sort of things and, and help that to grow? And as I thought about that, and that's been kind of my, my process for preparing, preparing for this, I realized the answer is Christ. Christ is the answer for our goals, uh, the, these spiritual goals that we set up. He is the answer for me reaching a place where I can be pleasing and glorifying and magnify the Father. And the book of Colossians is all about Christ. And so I wanted to study from it again this morning. Paul here has been very busy speaking to these, these Christians from Colossae. And he's telling them, you all have a wonderful name, a church that he hasn't seen face to face. And he says, you have a wonderful name, a wonderful reputation. Your love and your faith, it's went out and people are talking about it. Much like he wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, I, I, I've heard so many good things, but he reminds them, you can't rest on your name alone. Reputations don't mean everything. Makes us think of some of the churches in, that he wrote to, in, in, or that John wrote to in Revelation. Churches that had a name that they were living, but yet, even though that was their reputation, in fact, they were dead. And so he tells them, you can't rest on your, rep on your reputation. You must remain focused on Christ. Stand in Him. Stand in His accomplishments. And then he reminds them, I'm bringing you this message through great suffering. And so he's calling for them to listen to what he has to say, not just because of who he is, but because of what he's going through to try to make sure they know about Christ. And they are reminded constantly of the reward that he has to offer. In fact, that is, that is really his, his main push as we get into 
the end of chapter 1 and start into chapter 2. That this suffering that I'm going through as a minister of the gospel of Christ to you is worth it because I have my eyes on the reward. And so let me tell you a little bit about what that means for you. And so he starts in chapter 2 and he says in verses 1 through 5, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. He really gets to the point of things in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says this is the goal. I am suffering. I am suffering to bring a message to you. And the, the goal of my suffering, the reward of my suffering in this day is your assurance to reach the riches of full assurance. That, that idea of there's no uncertainty in Christ. He says through understanding Him, through knowing Him, that brings the riches of this full assurance. And so whenever I read that, I realize in my life that means that I don't ever just dismiss Christ. And I'm afraid sometimes we can kind of fall into that habit. Say, you know what, I've been saved and I'm good. I'm on my walk towards heaven and I, I start to just wean myself away from what has brought me into that path. I start to leave Christ and have my attention focused elsewhere. And I can't do that. We can't dismiss Him with the idea that I'm saved and I have nothing to worry about. It's about having a continual relationship with Him. It's about having a knowledge that continues to grow in Him. And even though there's a struggle that belongs with that, it's worth it because of Jesus Christ. So I want us to consider what Paul is really saying in these first five verses to the Colossians. He's saying, I see what's going on. I have heard about your name and I know about the struggles and I'm going through struggles too. I'm with you. I'm there. I'm going through these things alongside you and I'm going through them for you. And even though I'm not there bodily, I'm there in spirit. And I think about that message for me today. The things that Paul suffered. The things that the early Christians suffered. They suffered so that I could know the gospel of Christ today. The things that my grandparents and their parents and Christians before me have struggled and suffered and fought through. Hard things too. And we look at sometimes and go, well, they didn't have it as hard as these guys. But they made sure that their children were taught the gospel. And they made sure that their neighbors were told about the gospel. And they did things that, that weren't always easy to make sure that I today could know Christ. And even though they're not with me bodily, even though Paul is not with us in body, they still in spirit are with us. But most of all, even though He is not with us in body, Christ is with us. In spirit. And that's the, 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 the thrust of this message. We can have this full assurance. We can bask in that even though absent in body, Christ remains. He is the mystery of God that we can come to a knowledge of. 
And once Paul has made these points of what it means to know Christ, he begins to really delve into the actual point that he wants the Colossians to know. And that is, what does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to have that full assurance? Because we can throw those words around all day long and go, yeah, that kind of feels good. But I really don't know what I'm saying. And so he's telling them, I want to really get into what that means, what that full assurance does. And so in verse 6, he says, Therefore, because of this knowledge that you can have of God, because of my suffering to make sure that you have this gospel message presented to you, and because of that gospel message, this, starting in verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head and over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out our certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, Take his stand, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. At a time in our lives where it becomes very easy for us to focus inward, focus on self and say, how am I doing and how can I do better? We begin to create our resolutions. We begin to create create those goals. And at a time like that, I believe it is best for us to remember this truth. It is through Christ and in Christ alone that we truly find our value, truly find our wealth, and that we can ever be personally satisfying and pleasing to the Lord. 
And this is the message that Paul brings the Colossians. And he's going to remind them in these verses that they must maintain a faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what he's saying in verse 6. If you turn away from that, if you let other voices water down the good news of Christ, if you change Jesus in some way, then you have left Jesus. You must stay in the faith that saved them. And that's his point from the beginning of the book. In chapter 1, in verse 23, notice he says, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have, was made a minister. So notice he's continuing that thought here in chapter 2, verse 6. Verses 6 and 7, he says, Walk in the faith that you were established in. Verse 23, he says, talks about the gospel that you heard. Verse 6, he says, the gospel that you have been taught. He's reminding them over and over again, here's what you need to stay in Christ. It's His gospel. It's His words. It's His life and His actions and His deeds. Focus on those things. Don't turn from them. Don't change them. Don't water them down. Don't make them more stringent. Don't make it harder. Because no matter what you do, whether you change it to make it easier or you change it to make it tougher, you have changed it and you have lost everything that was given to you to help you. And so if Christ is all we need, and Christ alone, then when we step outside of that, we've lost everything. And so with that background, he's going to use that message to say this. Stay in Christ. He's going to give them four reasons. Four reasons that this church needed to know. Four reasons that we need to know that we should stay in Christ. Number one is Christ brings freedom. Or more accurately, Christ leaving Him leads us into captivity. Turning away from Christ, turning away from Him, takes us right back into slavery and loses the freedom that He attained for us. Why is that? Why does Christ bring freedom and why does turning away from Him in any form cause us to go back into slavery? Number one, he says in verse 9, it's because Christ is the fullness of God. He is the fullness of deity. And we want to find the fullness of God. We have to find it in Christ. Over in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter also brings this same message. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 2 actually. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He says, by Christ, by what God has given us for life and godliness, a true knowledge of Him, by these precious promises, we can become partakers of the divine nature and escape. And Paul is reminding them, what Christ has given you, 
through His gospel, through the good news of His life, turning away from that is jumping back into what He rescued you from. You have escaped it, but now you're going right back into captivity, into slavery. Jesus also, as He provides, as He reveals here, is not just the, the, the head of all things, and He's not the fullness of, of God, but He's also the true circumcision. And we read verse 11, it makes us wonder if whether or not the Jews in the area were telling them, hey, you guys, we've seen a change in you, and you're telling us that you believe in God and that you're following Him, and you've, you've come to know Him through this Jesus Christ. Well, you know what? That Jesus Christ was a Jew like me, and you have to be circumcised if you want to be pleasing to God. It would seem that the Jews were trying to, to bring that about around in their minds that unless you're physically circumcised, you can't please God in the way that He needs to be pleased. And Paul is saying, wait a minute, you have a better circumcision. In verses 11-12, through 12, it's a picture of baptism. It's a picture of baptism where the, the, the body of flesh, sin, is surgically removed from man when we are baptized with Christ. We are buried with Him. It's gone. And so why would you go through a procedure done by man when God has already worked in you a perfect circumcision? He has already removed sin from you. He has made you pure. He has made you holy. Why would you go to some inferior surgeon to try to do even more from what was already done perfectly? They were not going to be led into a better relationship with God through their circumcision. They were going to be led back into the captivity of laws and regulations that never could save. He also goes on to show that Christ brings freedom because not only has He the, the fullness of God and has He provided with them this, this perfect circumcision to lead to purity, but He brings life to them as well. He continues on with that picture right after saying that you have been circumcised, you have been buried with Him in baptism. But then he says that God who raised Him from the dead raises you from the dead. You were dead in your transgressions and the circumcision of your flesh, but He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us our transgressions, canceling the certificate of debt consisting of decree, decrees against us. He says, look at this law that they are trying to draw your minds away from. You're trying to be more and more pure. You're trying to be more spiritual. And so you're trying to hold to these things that these Jews are coming to you and saying you must do if you want to please God. And I'm telling you, God nailed those to a cross so that you could have a real life. Would you go back to that? You've been made alive with Him. Would you turn away from Him to try and find real life? And would you turn away from Him to try and find victory? Because Christ is the real triumph. Verse 15 is a very Roman statement. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them. Whenever the Romans would go off to war, when they came back, they would have a grand display, these parades that they would bring. Here's the generals that fought for us, the men that, that, that did so many heroic deeds, and in that parade would be the captives. Here's the king that we have conquered, and he's being led through the streets in shackles. This is what Rome can do 
This is a public display of victory. And no one in their right mind would run into that parade to fall down before the king in shackles and say, I want to serve you. Because at best, you're going to wind up in shackles with him. At worst, you're going to lose your life right then and there. Paul says, you all think that would be crazy. But Christ has overcome the world. He has made a public display of everything that could possibly stand against Him, and you want to turn to it and serve it? It makes no sense. Follow Him and not the things that He has conquered. He goes on to show them what that looks like by bringing to their mind that Christ is the substance and they were very quickly having their minds turned to the shadow. Again, verses 16 and 17, we see Jewish influence. When he says, no one is to be your judge in regard to food or drink. Now this is very clearly connected to the festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. And so we can understand what he's talking about there. Are these people that were trying to implement their, their ceremonial laws of, of, on, on food? Things that, that were clean and unclean, things that you were to eat at a certain time or not to eat ever. These, these events that they were to, to observe, certain days that are supposed to be more holy than others. He says, don't let anyone be a judge of you over these things because these things are shadows of what is to come. The substance of that shadow belongs to Christ. You can almost again hear... These, these men who had come in and said, hey, you guys are doing good, but if you want to be really spiritual, you really want to please God, don't forget that He made the Sabbath day and we keep it holy. So on the Sabbath day, you all aren't going to, to do these things. And you don't, you, you got to quit eating pork. You can't do that anymore. And those guys, you, you love your polyester, you love your blends, you can't do that either. Because that's not what God wants. You don't mix these blends. You don't mix these linens. This is how you please God. By keeping all of these regulations. you got to do those things. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. These guys have missed the point of what the law was. And he uses this word picture here of shadows and substance. Now I want you to think for a moment that it's not a day like today and the sun is shining and it's beautiful. And you're walking down Main Street in Nicholasville and you come to a corner and you see a shadow approaching from the opposite direction. And you know in your mind there's something, somebody making that shadow. Something has to be the substance that has provided the shadow. And so for our, our, our example, we'll just say it's me walking down the street and Holly is coming around the corner. And as she comes around the corner, I finally see the substance and the shadow. And how crazy would you think I was if I fell on the ground trying to somehow scoop that shadow in my arm to embrace it? Say, Kyle has lost his mind. Boy, get up off the ground and give your wife a hug. So what are you thinking? He says, that's exactly what you're doing though. The law is the shadow. The law is the shadow cast from the light of God as it hits the cross of Christ. 
The light of God reflects back into the past, hits the cross of Christ, and that shadow that it creates is the law. And the law was meant to draw people's attention to the cross, to the Christ, because the law never had the ability to save. That wasn't the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to reveal to the people, you need a Savior. You need someone who will give you a new heart. You need someone that can solve the problem of sin. And those who went back to the law misunderstood what it was teaching them. They misunderstood that. And Paul said, don't go back. Look to the substance and stay in Christ alone. Because in Christ you have been qualified. And so turning away from Him cheats you. It robs you of something. Now, to understand what he's saying here, we have to go back to chapter 1. And look with me in verse 12. He says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He said, God has done something to qualify you. That you can share in the inheritance. You can share in the promise. That idea of inheritance should draw our minds back to the Old Testament. To that inheritance in a promised land where God will be in the midst of His people and He will lead them. He's talking about our inheritance in heaven. God has qualified us to partake of that, to be those who can receive that inheritance, and He's qualified us in Christ. And so turning away from Him turns away from those things that have qualified us. And we are being cheated out of that. If you follow these other voices, Paul is saying, if you listen to what these other people are saying and doing, you're being cheated, you're being disqualified, you're being robbed. And he uses two warnings, two points to show that. The first one is false humility, and the second one is this angel worship. Over in verses 18 and 19, the New American Standard says, Let no one keep defrauding you by the prize of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Maybe uh, your translation has uh, something there like the idea of asceticism or pious self-denial, righteous self-denial. These words mean it's the idea of cutting off anything and everything that might somehow provide enjoyment to the flesh. We say, well, wait a minute, that might not be a bad idea because the flesh is what we wage war against, is it not? So if it's fun, if there's a temptation involved, if we might enjoy it or it might cause us to think uh, wrongly or too highly about ourselves, we're just going to cut all those things off. He says that's the first way that you can be cheated. How can that cheat us? Let's go on. The second way is this idea of worshiping angels. And it's possible that that is talking about giving praise to beings that just ought not be praised. We see pictures of that in the book of Revelation. When John does that and the angel has to tell him, no, no, no. You don't praise me. You don't worship me. I'm not worthy of that. But when we read this, and especially as you get back to the structure of it in the Greek, it seems like the focus is more on the visions. Taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. It's almost like these people are saying, I know I am more spiritual than you, and you can be as spiritual as me when you have these amazing spiritual experiences. I've seen the angels worshiping in heaven, just like John records in Revelation 4. I've seen the throne scene. I've had these wonderful experiences, and when you have those, then you know you've made it to spirituality. 
Now, we might hear those things. And again, in our mind, think, well, maybe there is some truth to that. Cutting everything off, denying ourselves. If we don't do that, then we're not truly connected to God. Experiencing this, these amazing spiritual experiences. If we don't have those, maybe we're not connected to God. They were saying, this is what you have to have to grow. This is what you have to have to, to be able to get into heaven. And Paul is saying, guys, if that's what you have to have, then what did God do to qualify us to be inheritors? God has already qualified them. If you want to grow, if you want to draw closer to Him, it's not by the things that you cut off. Now, they might be quick to jump back to Jesus' words and say, wait a minute, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself is what I'm doing. But I believe Paul would be quick to point out that when Jesus said that, he was not talking about cutting everything out of his life. When he denied himself, he denied the rights that he had. He denied his state at the right hand of God. He sacrificed everything to follow God. Self-abasement. Paul is saying, this idea of saying, well, I am righteous because I don't have any of these. I don't eat meat because that meat might have been offered to an idol. I don't eat meat because it might make me gluttonous. So I'm just never going to do that again. He says, that's not what makes righteousness. That's not what Christ was talking about when He said to deny yourself. He's saying God has qualified you not because of what you've done, because of what Christ has done. And so if we want to grow, it's not by looking at all of these abilities that we are doing. It's about getting back to who qualified us and how He did it. It's about keeping our vision focused on Christ. In fact... There is no aspect where turning from Christ ever benefits us. The Colossians, in these verses, verses 20 through 23, it becomes clear they're fixing to follow, fall away. Their heads are turning away from Christ. And Paul is rebuking them in these last three verses. They hadn't apostatized yet. They hadn't just completely abandoned God. That's the direction they're going when they start looking to other things to make them righteous. Other things to make them more holy. And Paul is calling them back. He's saying, why would you submit yourself to useless things when those things aren't what died for you? Christ died for you. And, if Christ, and in Christ you died to the world, why do you turn back to it? Even if it appears wise, why do you turn back to it as if it can somehow do more for you than what Christ has already done? And I believe the problem that they had then is a problem we still have now. They had an outside-in, upside-down, or bottom-up religion. An outside-in. I'm going to say it wrong again. Outside-in, bottom-up religion. They were dealing with the outside. 
They were dealing with the external. Don't do this. Make sure you do that. Somehow, by these restrictions and these regulations that they placed on themselves, that is going to change the inward man that's going to change our hearts and it will take sinful people from the bottom up to heaven to be with the Father. Somehow, if we can fix all the externals, that's going to get us to heaven. Outside in, bottom up religion. The problem with that is it's not at all what God has created. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking uh, with, with some Pharisees who have rebuked Him and His disciples for some of their actions. And He's talking with His own disciples as well, trying to get them to see just how wrong this very thinking is. In Mark seven fifteen, He says, There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. The things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. In verse 18, as he's talking to his disciples, when they say, what does this mean? He says, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus was saying it's not what's outside coming in. That's not the problem. It's what's inside that's coming out. And that means that we can address the outside of the cup all day long. We can dress it up. We can make it look so amazing. We can dress it up and say, that. look at that person. He always comes to service. Look at that person, how much they give. Look at that person, what all the things that they're doing. We can show the outside to be so amazing. And the inside be completely rotted. Addressing the outside will not address the source of defilement. The source of defilement comes from the heart. I want to give you just a, a quick example of this. There, there is, uh, in, in many, not all, but in many Pentecostal groups, they, they have taken uh, and made some rules and regulations for themselves to try and solve an inward problem, and that is women do not wear makeup. Women do not wear makeup. The reason for this is because if a woman were to wear makeup, men might take more notice of her, and then those men might think impure thoughts about her. She might even like the fact that men are noticing her, and she also might begin to be self-conscious about the body that God has given her and not like it or appreciate it as much. So to solve these problems, women do not wear makeup. Now, in some regards, we might look at that and say, oh, that there's a little bit of wisdom to that. But in reality, what we need to look at that and say is God did not say that. That is not what God has provided. And anyone who comes to that conclusion comes to it through human reasoning and human reasoning alone. Now that human reasoning may be based off of Scripture. I don't want to suggest that, that they just completely pulled that out of the air. That's not true. It is based off Scripture, but it's still human reasoning based off of Scripture. The conclusion 
that, we come, that they have come to about makeup, I'm not even saying that conclusion is wrong. If that's the conclusion you come to, if that's the conclusion that you say, I, you know what, I can't wear makeup without feeling like I have sinned, then do not wear makeup. That is the point that, that, that Paul brings up to the Corinthians. Things done without faith are things done with sin. But what we must know is we can't begin to bind that upon others as something that they must do to be more spiritual. And we can't begin to think that somehow because of our actions, we are making ourselves more spiritual, more pleasing to God. Because we need to understand, makeup is not what defiles a, problem, a person. We'll never fix problems like lust. We'll never fix problems like discontentment, covetousness. We won't fix these things with outward rules. We won't fix these things with what we do on the surface because they're inward problems of the heart. But I'm afraid that just like they have been drawn to that sort of thinking, oftentimes we're drawn to that sort of thinking as well. We think in those ways oftentimes, this outside-in, bottom-up thinking. We have to have all the rules. We want to make sure that somehow we've got a list of things that we do this, this, and this, and we're going to get ourselves to heaven. We're going to find a way to get ourselves in there. Or worse yet, we're going to find a way to control other people to making them what we want them to be. But that's not what God has done. Now, I do want to say this. I am not saying that God has not given us rules. Jesus told us, if you love me, keep my commandments. That implies that there are rules. There is a law of Christ that must be followed. But what He has given us in the New Testament is not so much a rule-bound list like what He provided to the Israelites. Rather, it is a way for us to stand before Him holy. It is a way for us to come before Him in a manner in which pleases Him, glorifies Him, and magnifies Him. It is a way for us to know Christ and to be found in Him. You see, there are so many people who have been unsatisfied with that with the thought that God has just given us a way to know Christ and belong to Him. And this has led to various creed books. This has led to various rules and regulations that have been made that have noble desires behind them. I want to make sure that people live in such a way that they please God. And so I'm going to make a list of things that they should do to please God. And while it is a noble attempt, it robs us of the very thing Christ gave us to live for Him. It robs us of the gospel because it turns our hearts and our minds away from it. And it bothers me. It bothers me because it makes me realize the gospel is the story of Christ. It's the message of His life and His death. And it's the way in which I can stand before God. And it's given me a lot of general principles that I'm free to apply, but you might not apply the same way as me. And that bothers me because 
I feel like I'm right. But we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful that we don't step into the very place that Paul is trying to get the Colossians out of. It's not about your rules. It's not about your regulations. It is about Christ and what Christ has done. You know, we picked on the Pentecostals. Um, If we bring it on home, we could use the same mentality toward the way we view modesty. I've done it before, and I'm sure you have heard other preachers as well get up and say, through Scripture, through, through very, very accurate Scripture, this is how low a dress can go. This is how much uh, of, of the flesh that can be shown. These are the things that make for modest dress. If you do these things, you are modest. But I'm afraid that's not what God's Word teaches. Modesty is not about covering up the body. It is about clothing the heart. If we can teach our children, male and female, to put on modest hearts that are gracious to what God has done for us, I don't have to set limits on how much skin has to be clothed. They tend to do that themselves. You see, that's the beauty of God's Gospel is when we start cleansing the heart, when we start allowing the the great physician to circumcise the, the terrible sin that has corrupted and hardened our hearts, oftentimes the externals begin to follow. They begin to mold themselves. They begin to make themselves into the image of Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that we don't set up fences for ourselves, that we don't set limits for ourselves, and that we don't encourage others to make sure that they consider these things. But I can't make somebody a disciple of my laws. I must, I must make them a disciple of the gospel of Christ. And so what does that have to do? What does that have to do with us today? God's answer to outside-in, bottom-up religion. It's an inside-out, top-down religion. And I think we see that in Colossians chapter 3. And this is what this has to do with us today. Whenever He tells them to watch out for these things that can take your, your freedom in Christ away. Watch out for these things that can corrupt and can cause you to go right back into death. He follows it up. If you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ with God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. He's saying value the things of Christ. And everything else will tend to take care of itself. Did not Jesus say something very similar to this? Did not Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Put God, put Christ at the center of our being. Live as if we live in Christ alone. If we consider that we have died with Him, if we consider that we are going to be raised with Him, and if we consider that once raised with Him, we are going to live with Him, 
And it might change our considering on how we live today. If I act as if I already live with Christ today, how sure am I of that? That's what he's getting back to in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. You have been buried with him, and just as he was raised, you are being raised. How sure am I of that? If I'm as sure of it as he was when he wrote it, or as he wrote of the Babylonians, Babylon has fallen hundreds of years before it happened. If I'm as sure as that, am I going to change the way that I think today as if I know I'm going to be living with him in heaven? As if I'm already standing in the presence of God? Will that change the way that I act? If we will start to allow our hearts to be molded from the inside out and recognize that what comes from God is what makes us holy and pure, not what comes from ourselves, then that, ha- that tends to have an effect on so many things. As you read through the rest of the chapter, he shows them what it does to their speech. He shows them what it does to their, their relationships with one another, their relationships in the world. And so maybe at this time of the year, you're thinking things like, I need to fix this or this for the, for the next year. I hope that you will think about Christ. What are we trying to change this year? I want to suggest that these changes are important. If you are trying to to use better speech this year, I want to, to, to say things more often that are kind and encouraging and lifting people up and stop complaining and being bitter about things this year. Or I'm, I'm worried about my marriage and I want to make my marriage better this year. I want to be a better husband, a better father, a better, a better spouse. These changes are important. But I want us to know these changes are meaningless without Christ at the center of them. We must turn our heart to Him fully. We study our Bible not to know how we can answer a debate. We study our Bible to know who Christ was so that we can follow after Him. Turning to Him can change our speech. Focusing on Him makes angry outbursts less likely. Lying seems unnecessary. Focusing on His love has such an impact on the way that we look at our spouses and the way that we think about them. Loving them sacrificially as He loved us. But if we're doing any of these things to think somehow that's going to make us more righteous, somehow that's what I need to get to heaven, what I want to remind you is what Paul is saying here. It's not being a perfect husband that gets you to heaven or a perfect wife or having the best language in the world. It's not about how many times you came to services. It's not about how many prayers you've prayed. What gets us to heaven is Jesus Christ. What He has done is what we need to focus on. Put our mind there. Put that in our heart. The inside, focused on Christ, and the outside so often will follow along. Do you want to be raised with Christ? Well, then we must first be buried with Him. If we have not believed in Christ enough to realize that He is the only way that I am getting from this life sinful and and, and wretched on earth to a pure, holy life with Him in heaven, then I have not yet. I am not yet with Christ. If I have not turned my heart away from sin and turned it towards God confessing that Jesus is His Son who is alive, then I am not yet 
in Christ. If I have not been buried with Him in baptism, if I have not been circumcised by God the Father having my sins cut away from me, then I am not yet in Christ. I am still, in fact, in captivity. I am still held by Satan. But I can change that today. Rather, He can change that today. There is water here. What is keeping you from your salvation? But for many of us, we've made that decision. And we've been walking with Him. And we've been focused on Him. But in our world, it's also very easy to begin focusing on philosophies and regulations and restrictions and having our hearts and minds turned away from Christ. If that is true of you today, I encourage you to end 2019 and begin 2020 with a new, renewed focus on who died for you to bring you out of your sinful life and bring you into an inheritance in the kingdom of His Son. If we can help you with that in any way, I encourage you, come forward and let it be known as we stand and sing the song of encouragement.